0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike wall We've had some seismic news in the Star Trek community recently. A brand new, live-action Star Trek TV series is being developed for CBS All Access. Its name? Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Now, before you get too excited, no, this is not going to be a live-action version of this podcast, although that would be pretty great, actually. (laughs) I would love to get in front of the camera and show you the wonders of the universe with visuals on the bridge of a starship, maybe as captain. (laughs) But unfortunately, this is not going to be a series about Captain Mike Wong. This series will follow the advent <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Just saying that started like I started... <laughs> I started tearing up because like, what if they actually made a series about Captain Mike Wong? Anyway, sorry. This series will follow the adventures of Captain Christopher Pike and the USS Enterprise as they were introduced to us in the second season of Star Trek Discovery. I think that this is phenomenal news because, like so many fans around the world, I hugely enjoyed getting to know Pike, Number One, and Spock in Star Trek Discovery, as well as seeing the classic Enterprise back in action, albeit spruced up a bit from its 1960s glamour. And also, I mean, they couldn't have chosen a better show title, in my opinion, and I can't wait to talk about the science of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, right here, on Strange New Worlds. But enough of that. We will have plenty more to discuss in the future. Let's turn to our topic for today, the science of supernovae. As described in Andre Bormanus's book, Star Trek Science Logs, a supernova is, quote, the granddaddy of all stellar explosions. A star undergoing a supernova explosion will increase in brightness by a factor of billions. When a star explodes in a supernova, it radiates more energy in its first few seconds than that of every star in our galaxy. End quote. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Andy Howell, who not only studies supernovae himself, but also leads an international coalition of scientists who characterize these cataclysmic events. Andy also produces a YouTube series called Science vs. Cinema, and published very recently a phenomenal episode about Star Trek Picard which, as you probably know, had a pretty important supernova in it. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Andy Howell to Strange New Worlds. Andy is an astronomer at Las Cumbres Observatory and on the physics faculty at UC Santa Barbara. Andy, I am so glad that you're joining me to talk about the science of Star Trek Picard. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, although we're both in the space sciences community, I actually first heard of you through your YouTube series, Science vs. Cinema. And as the title of your show suggests, it's not just about the science of Star Trek, but the science behind numerous science fiction TV shows and movies. So can you tell us a little bit about how science and science fiction have intersected in your own life and what role Star Trek especially has played in your life?
1: Yeah, I started liking science fiction way before I I was an astronomer, of course. I saw Star Wars when I was like, you know, a little tiny kid. And then I thought, oh, man, that's so exciting. You know, space is so cool. And then uh, later I saw Star Trek uh, The Next Generation in my formative years and then also just fueled my love of space things. You know, and I, I kind of wanted to be somehow involved in the space world. Um, I grew up in Florida where, you know, the space shuttle launches were not that far away, um, but I was too tall uh, to be an astronaut. So uh, <laughs> the next best thing is uh, astronomy. And so I started studying that in grad school and, you know, before long uh, became a professional astronomer. And, but to Star Trek and Star Wars both played a big role in basically getting me there.
0: Fantastic. So this past March, you released an episode examining the science of Star Trek Picard's first season. And as a fellow science communicator myself, I just have to say it was a phenomenal production. So well done on that. Thank you. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, you absolutely must. I'm putting the link in the show notes. Um, Andy, you basically pulled out all the stops for this show. You used green screens, you took clips from not just Picard, but also some of the other Star Trek series as well. You interview eminent scientists about their expertise, and you also interview the cast and crew and producers of Star Trek Picard. How on earth did you swing that?
1: Uh, Well, it's a long story that basically starts with... I've been writing about film for more than 20 years and so as a result you know so I actually cover like film festivals as press and I write about movies not just the science of but movies themselves. So I've you know sort of been plugged into the film industry for a long time and uh I live in Santa Barbara it's not that far from LA. So I started getting invited to certain press events you know, for the writing about movies side of things. And then to make the first episode of Science for Cinema, uh, the one on The Martian, we actually were invited to cover a junket where they they have a bunch of press come and they make the stars and different people available to them to talk about the movie. Um, That's a normal part of promoting a movie or, or TV show. Uh, they invited me as like a writer, but then we just basically brought cameras and started filming some stuff, and then that got us, you know, a good enough production, and and then that episode got seen by you know I don't know what a million and a half people or something like that, and so then people were like, oh okay, these guys are serious, and then so after that, now we're established as you know these people that can you know make a decently produced show and and have access to people and so it's one of those things where once you start getting access it makes it easier to get more access but in some ways it was almost harder to get everybody else the scientists and the winemakers and things like that that we have in the show <laughs> than it was to get the stars because for the stars the, the as long as you go through the studio they will give you access for like a, you basically go for like a day and then they do like these meetings in a room one by one by one Uh, And so you might only have, you know, a few minutes with each person. So you got to make your your questions count. But at least like once you're into that system, that's like a done deal. Uh, But whereas each other person, you have to really, you know, do the legwork, follow up with people, explain what you're doing. And, you know, sometimes scientists, sometimes they are big science fiction fans. Sometimes they're just not at all. And uh, they're busy people, too. But uh, luckily, there was a lot of science connected to the show. And, well, a lot of things connected to the show that happen to just be super nearby. Um, so we don't have a big budget for the show. But we just basically make it me and a producing partner, uh, James do almost all the work, James Darling, and uh, we occasionally hire people to as crew to when we need them. But um, it fortunately, having people nearby means we don't have to travel. We do sometimes travel for the show. But it was great that the resources we need were were so close.
0: That's really funny that the scientists were harder to get on your show than the actual actors from Star Trek Picard, because I think of, I mean, I'm a professional scientist, too. So I think of, oh, if I want to talk to a scientist, I just walk down the hall. Not these days, of course, because we're all sheltered in place. But, you know, scientists are easy to find. Uh, But Star Trek actors, they're like on a different plane of existence. (laughs) But it it was sort of opposite for you.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things about professional actors and and showrunners and things like that is promoting the show is part of their contract. And so the real trick there, the hard work was really, you know, building our show in the first place. Mm -hmm. If we had a much smaller audience um, or this was our first time and I hadn't been doing this for a long time, you know, I wouldn't have been able to get in that door. So I'm saying that part was easy for me, but it's only because of a lot of hard work over many, many years. So, right but the the and with the the scientists were actually very happy to do it it's just that you know it requires a little bit more on -on one-on-one tracking people down explaining what the show is explaining what they would have to do and and they're not always you know as used to being on camera and so those interviews can be much harder than with a professional actor i mean professional actors they really know how to give a sound bite they know how to promote a show they maybe have asked been asked the same questions over and over again they have great answers already lined up whereas for scientists often they're just coming out of the blue and don't really know Uh, how to focus their thoughts or how to like give a very succinct thing that's going to be edited. So you you have to do a lot of editing. And so it's it's always a lot more work actually working with the scientists than it is with the actors.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely experienced that as well. You know, (laughs) scientists who uh, just love to go off on tangents and talk about everything in the universe. but. Um, you know, every episode of Science vs. Cinema or Strange New Worlds can only be focused on uh, a certain number of topics at once. Um, and also, I'm just so jealous that you were able to chat with people like Patrick Stewart and Issa Briones and Alison Pill and Marina Sirtis. Um, were there any particularly funny or heartwarming moments from those interviews, those brief moments that you had with those those actors or, or and the producers as well?
1: Yeah. And, you know, not all of it even made it into the show because we just, you know, had a, I mean, we could have made that show like five hours long, you know, we had so much material, but uh, we wanted to keep it down to about 30 minutes. So, uh, yeah, you know, Marina Certis was just so pleasant and and warm and, and funny. And uh, even though I was only talking to her for uh, a little while, she just you know made you feel like really special and engaged and she just is hilarious uh so uh, that was a pleasant surprise and and Patrick Stewart as well just so warm and engaging and what a what a guy that is just exactly like you expect Patrick <laughs> Patrick Stewart or pa- or Captain Picard to be I mean he he is that guy and uh a lot of the things I talked about with Patrick Stewart made it made it into the show, but there was there was one thing that uh, with Marina Sirtis that didn't that it, it was interesting. She said that her her husband had had recently died, and uh, when I'd asked her what Star Trek meant to her, she said it really meant family, and um, that's what was really getting her through of the hard times after that was the the whole Star Trek extended family, both people in Star Trek and the fans. Uh, and so I thought that was. That was, you know, really nice.
0: Yeah, that's really wonderful. Um, and I'm glad to hear that the actors feel that sense of family too, because I feel that sense of camaraderie with my fellow fans. And you know, when I feel down, I turn to, to Star Trek. It it often cheers me up. And for for
1: yeah, I I, I usually put on Wrath of Khan if I'm if I'm not feeling so great or something. <laughs> I'm just like oh, let's put on the best Star Trek thing that there is.
0: Yeah. So in your Science versus Cinema episode on Star Trek Picard, you tackle a wide range of scientific topics from the science of winemaking to quantum consciousness. But today we're going to focus our scientific discussion mainly on your own research on supernovae. Um, so I know that there are a couple of different kinds of supernovae, and I often get them confused in my mind. So Andy, could you tell us what exactly is a supernova and what are the different types?
1: Yeah, the, the the main type people would think of is a massive star, like one say eight or 10 times the mass of the sun. When it runs out of fuel at the end of its life in the core, it's, it's doing fusion in the core and you can only fuse elements up so big. So you can't basically fuse iron into anything heavier. It takes energy to do that instead of producing energy. And so once you start doing silicon burning, that's like the last step and it can't go any farther it produces iron and then the iron core just collapses and that produces a black hole or a neutron star and it explodes the the rest of the star Um, that's called a type 2 supernova which just means there's a lot of hydrogen because it's the hydrogen layers of the star blowing up but there's another type called a type 1a supernova which is basically a white dwarf that explodes if it's in a binary system. And those are just because uh, white dwarfs are like the mass of the sun, but packed into like the size of the earth and they're not doing any burning either. They're, they're just a cooling off dead cinder, the ash from a star. Like our sun will produce a white dwarf in uh, five billion years or so, but it won't blow up because it doesn't have a binary companion. If it had a, another star nearby and it would steal some of that matter from the other star, that Type One A supernova could blow up. Um, And so those type 1A supernovae are what we use to chart distances in the universe, because they're relatively standard candles, and so we can use them to map out the history of the expansion of the universe. Some of the work that I do in cosmology, but I also do work on, on core collapse supernovae, these massive stars that
0: collapse. So can you say a little bit more about these type 1A as you said they're only found in this very specific kind of system with a white dwarf and a different companion star and the white dwarf is stealing mass from that companion star and then you said when these supernovae go off they are standard candles um so can you explain what the concept of a standard candle is and how that helps us basically tell the story of of our universe
1: Yeah they are about the same brightness when they blow up um not exactly but they're different in ways that we can calibrate for. Basically if they're brighter supernovae they take longer to rise and fall in brightness and so we can use that information to calibrate their brightness and figure out how far away they are and that's one of the hardest things to figure out in astronomy is measuring distances. So um, we can make a map of these distances of these supernovae compared to how fast they're expanding because of the expansion of the universe. I mean, how fast they're moving away from us from the expansion of the universe. And so we can sort of then make a map of the history of the expansion of the universe. And then that tells us, was the universe expanding faster today or in the past? And so from doing that, people figured out that the universe has been accelerating in its expansion. Um, And one of the groups that I, I used to work for, the Supernova Cosmology Project, uh, that's led by uh, Saul Perlmutter, and he was one of the people that got the Nobel Prize in 2011 for discovering that. And the other part of the prize went to Adam Reese and Brian Schmidt for leading the high z team, and they're friends of mine too. And so um, we actually got Brian Schmidt to be on, on the show on, on Science the Cinema uh, for this Picard episode, because he is both uh, an expert in supernovae and an expert in winemaking. <laughs> so we get to ask him about both things because he actually owns a winery as well.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I remember when Saul Perlmutter won the Nobel Prize in 2011 because I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley at that time. Um, so it was pretty big news for us.
1: Ah, great. Yeah, I I had left by that time. I was uh, I, I got there like right after they had done the first paper and uh so i was there from like 2000 to 2003 but i participated in a lot of the research like right after that 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 sort of confirmed that and then i went on to another project called the supernova legacy survey in toronto where we got the best measurements after that of um what is this dark energy and so yeah just to finish that story i mean there's there's something making the universe accelerate and we don't know what it is so by analogy with dark matter since we can't see it we call it dark energy but it's not the same thing but it's it's something that's probably a property of the vacuum of space itself. It doesn't have zero energy, it has some finite energy, and it's like an anti-gravity that's sort of pushing space apart. And so about 73% of the universe is this stuff, and you know we know almost nothing about it. And so it's a huge area of research right now that I, I do spend some of my time uh, doing.
0: From a perspective of a planetary scientist, I find supernovae super important because without them, planets and life as we know it would be totally different as you said stars confuse elements all the way up until iron but the rest of the periodic table beyond iron most of that stuff is is formed in supernovae right
1: either supernovae or um kilonovae this other new type of explosion um, which is you know two neutron stars that merge together so they're almost black holes but not quite and then they merge together make a black hole um my group was one of the groups that sort of co-discovered the first one of those in, in 2017, and they, they produce gravitational waves. And so we can use these giant gravitational wave detectors, uh, one in Washington state and one in Louisiana and one in Italy. There's one coming online soon in, in uh, Japan. And then they tell us, look over there in the sky, because these things make actual distortions in space time and uh they can sense that and they can say, okay, there's two neutron stars that just merged together in that part of the sky, then we use our telescopes. I, I work at Las Cabres Observatory. We have a network of robotic telescopes. We go and look for them and we saw an explosion associated with one and found out that a lot of the heaviest elements on the periodic table, like the lanthanides, those things that are at the bottom of the periodic table, probably a lot of them were made in a kilonova Uh, explosion. And so like, you know, gold, if you have gold jewelry, it was probably made in an explosion like that.
0: I think that just makes jewelry and gold and and all all those pretty things in our lives even more amazing to look at, you know, to realize that this was synthesized in the explosion created by two merging neutron stars.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, it was probably right next to a black hole that was being created. But this stuff got thrown out, you know, and eventually ended up incorporated into the the cloud that became the sun and the earth and you know here it is so yeah it's pretty astonishing and it's amazing that we didn't know fundamental things about how you know the creation of our world the periodic table and all these things until like a few years ago i mean this is the the amazing thing about science is we're still learning totally new very fundamental things all the time
0: yeah it's an exciting time to be alive So a supernova and a kilonova, uh, those sound like super dramatic events, um, and most people have probably never witnessed one themselves. Can you give us a sense of how common or rare they are? Like how many are going off in the Milky Way at any given time, and, and how do we observe them from Earth?
1: So the last one in the Milky Way that was noticed by humans was probably about 400 years ago. Um, there there was one about 300 years ago that might have been noticed by humans, but we're not really sure about that. So the last one that we know was seen by humans was a uh, Kepler supernova in 1604, but they're happening all the time in other galaxies. They tend to happen about once every hundred years or so in a galaxy, but since there are hundreds of billions of galaxies, that means there's actually about a supernova every second in the universe, actually maybe quite a few a second, but we just can't see most of them because they're very very far away so if the star betelgeuse which is in orion a red giant star that's one of the armpits of orion it could make a type 2 supernova and you know a few months ago it was getting really dim and so some people were saying oh maybe it's going to become a supernova but um it it turned out it was just dust uh, that got formed in that star that caused it to dim and combined with certain cycles that the star has it's a variable star so it probably won't explode for you know we don't know it could be tomorrow it could be a hundred thousand years from now so these things are pretty rare events but when they do happen they're quite spectacular and sometimes you can see them from really across the universe i mean we've seen supernovae from right after the big bang say well say a few billion years after the big bang And so we've seen supernovae from, you know, before there was an Earth, you know, that light has been traveling across the universe. And then fortunately, you know, we've invented telescopes and then we can we can see that light and then encoded in that light is information about the history that that photon has come through through the entire uh, universe. So they're really powerful tools because they're so powerful of an explosion.
0: And you lead a group of over 200 scientists called the Global Supernova Project. What are the scientific questions that this giant collaboration is seeking to answer? And what are the tools and techniques that you are using to find those answers?
1: Yeah, we want to answer things like, you know, what happens in a supernova? How do they explode? That can give you answers to questions like, how do you create black holes? And it can help you test uh relativity other types of things that are very hard to to duplicate on earth because i mean these conditions in a supernova are something that we'll just never be able to create on earth and uh they're just fundamental questions about supernovae that we don't know like sometimes we see explosions and we don't know what type of thing exploded to make that and uh some of these touch on these fundamental things about where the heavy elements came from and so real stories of where do we come from and Supernovae themselves touch on all kinds of scales in astronomy, from galactic evolution, you know, how do galaxies evolve? When Supernovae happen, they actually can change whether a galaxy is forming stars or not, and and the whole future of a galaxy. And the creation of planets, you know, if you have more of these heavy elements that are produced in Supernovae, those help to make things like planets. They Supernovae help to scatter all of these ashes out into the universe that then become other things and then you know just on a stellar evolution scale how stars evolve and die uh, that's all wrapped up into this as well and then how we do it is uh, we have these we have a network of robotic telescopes and it's about 24 telescopes linked together into one single network so it's sort of like combining the telescope and the internet and uh, as the earth rotates we always have telescopes in the dark because these are placed around the world and so We can study supernovae like right now, if we found out that one happened and we can get data earlier than almost anybody else. And then we use that in conjunction with a lot of other facilities like uh, big telescopes like Keck or Gemini like in Hawaii or telescopes in South America or telescopes in space like the Hubble Space Telescope and the Swift satellite. So we also have programs on both of those space instruments that can tell us stuff that we can't get from the ground, like ultraviolet light that's blocked by the atmosphere. We can we can monitor that with Swift and some infrared light that is blocked by the atmosphere we can get with uh, Hubble.
0: So is the idea that you have this global network always scanning the skies for supernova events. And if you find one, you can quickly coordinate and say, these telescopes can observe it, and these telescopes can observe it in this wavelength, and these telescopes can, can do it in a different set of wavelengths. And so you can quickly gather as much information as possible about this event when, when you find one. Is that basically the idea?
1: Yeah, we don't usually find the supernovae. There are other groups that scan the sky uh, just looking for supernovae. And then we try to follow them up once a supernova is found very intensively. And uh, that's why we work together with so many people around the world. A lot of people have other telescopes that can do other aspects of the story, but we will get the optical light and the spectra. So splitting the light up into the rainbow and seeing what elements are there, that kind of stuff we can do with our facilities, but other people can do the stuff that we can't, and so we all work together. So part of what we're doing is trying to invent new tools and techniques for helping astronomers work together. Because it used to be that um, this was a data scarce kind of world where people might only know of a few supernovae per year, but now we're in the regime where you know thousands of supernovae are being discovered per year. So we have a lot of data and it, and it just makes everybody more efficient if we can share like, oh, you got some data on this, I got some data on this, let's put it together. And so we're in a totally new realm of astronomy. And so making all of these tools for the first time is pretty exciting. Being able to, to allow people to get online together, work on data together, and uh, meet together online and uh, talk about stuff and, 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 and write papers. Um, even though we may be in very different countries, come from very different cultures, you know, we can come to the same conclusion about some super distant thing way out there that's pretty pretty exciting to me
0: that's so cool um first of all just to know that we're in an age where we're no longer data starved or like photon starved Um, we're discovering so many supernovae and also like speaking to the human aspect of science you know you're trying to build these networks um because right now the thing that is the limiting factor in science being done is people from different cultures getting together and networking um so that's really important work that you're doing and i'm so glad that you're doing it
1: yeah there's people that study super on you know every continent i work with a project that has a telescope in antarctica as well and uh, so we work together with people from every continent. And, you know, sometimes we, we physically go to meetings. Right now, uh, we, we do more virtual meetings. But uh, everybody brings a slightly different piece to the story. And, you know, the people are as important as the telescopes. The telescopes are also scattered around the world so that we can see some supernovae in the northern hemisphere, some in the southern hemisphere scattered around in longitude so that as the earth rotates there are always telescopes in the dark but then there are people you know usually associated in those countries and we work with those people and so uh, i I really like that being able to be sort of connected and in touch with people in different cultures and yet we share a common culture and in that way it's it's somewhat similar to star trek where it's you know this is utopian version of the future where people from all different cultures uh, come together and they work together to, to solve problems so uh, maybe I ultimately got to be in my version of Star Trek.
0: <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, I was going to make the same remark. It sounded like you were describing the crew of the Enterprise or something like that. Um, yeah, transitioning back to Star Trek, um, we talked about how bright and catastrophic a supernova can be, that it can be seen essentially across the universe. Um, in Star Trek Picard, the writers have retconned the supernova that wipes Romulus off the star charts previously in the 2009 star Trek movie, it's established that um, basically a random star goes supernova and it's blast wipes out Romulus and threatens to destroy the entire galaxy. And that's why Spock has to go and stop it. Yada, yada, yada. But in star Trek, Picard, the star that goes supernova is identified as Romulus's parent star. Um, Can you tell us why as a scientist, you're much happier with this?
1: Yeah. So for this, it's a 2009 Star Trek movie. They made up some super weird, like, they called it a supernova, but it wasn't a supernova. It was something that could eat the whole galaxy. And, I mean, I don't even know what that is. There, There is no, I mean, there is no thing like that. It makes no damn sense. And there's no real reason for them to do that. Well, it, the reason is so convoluted and stupid it, that it's now, I don't even want to get into it. It's so so awful of an idea. <laughs> uh the, You know, it involves St- Spock getting some red matter, something that they made up, and it's going to stop a supernova. And so then they have to make the, the supernova be a different star than the Romulus's star. And then it doesn't even make sense because stars are like, you know, light years apart. Like the closest star to the sun is like four light years away, right? So let's say that another star blew up you know like i think they even said in one of the tie-in comic books or something that it was like 500 light years away well then it will take 500 years for the light even if it could destroy a neighbor star which it can't it'd still take 500 years to get there so you get 500 years to do something about this (laughs) you know so nothing about this makes any sense whatsoever and so this is part of the problem that can happen when um Movies don't have good science advising. They just write in this garbage, and uh, fortunately, there's better science advisors. They actually have science advisors, which they didn't on their that 2009 movie. They actually have science advisors on Picard, and I I think that they must have convinced them to say, okay, well, let's just make Romulus's host star be the one that blows up because that just makes that's that could actually happen. You know, you could have a star blow up and then have the people that live around that star, you know, they cannot live there anymore. Their, their planet may be destroyed, will, will be destroyed. And so now you've got to do something about it. That makes a lot more sense.
0: Yeah. The way you explain it makes me so much happier as well that, uh, this, this retconning happened. Uh, one thing I wonder about is, um, we know from Star Trek that Romulans are actually an offshoot of the Vulcan species. They left planet Vulcan and settled Romulus, about 2,000 years ago from Picard's vantage. So my question is, why would the Romulans settle a planet that is orbiting a star that is essentially about to go supernova? Uh, do you have any ideas on this? Can you retcon that for me, please?
1: Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. But it, at least it makes more sense that this kind of star went supernova. So, you know, they, they haven't said what type of supernova it is in the series. But since Romulus's star is not a binary system, it would have to be an evolved star so like a red giant star red supergiant star and that's that's the type that explodes, as these types of single stars that explode as supernovae and that would be a quite massive star quite evolved and so you would actually get plenty of signs that this thing is about to blow up sort of like a volcano before a volcano erupts you know there's rumbling seismic activity stuff like that with supernovae what we're actually finding right now very recently is that they tend to have some little mini explosions before they have the big, huge explosion. And so maybe about 50% of these types of stars, we've seen some evidence of some kind of explosion when you do a certain controlled kind of study of this. And and maybe even more have it at a lower level that we can't detect. And at least they would have neutrinos uh, that would be given off that do different things as as the star is shifting burning modes as it goes from say burning some fuel source like neon or something like that and and then as it goes to heavier and heavier elements until it eventually when it starts to burn like silicon that it can only burn silicon for like a day which is super short but in the prior phases it may only be be able to burn a fuel source for like six months or something like that so you get plenty of warning that your star is is really messed up and it's something is going to happen so they didn't really get into it in in Star Trek Picard why did the Romulans not figure this out but, you know, that's a lot of, like, backstory that you could imagine that, you know, maybe there's some political reason. Like, right now, hell, the in the actual world here, there's great science and there's still huge numbers of people that just ignore the science. So, you know, maybe the the Romulans got into a, a political situation like that. Who knows?
0: Mm, that's a really cool headcanon to think about. Um, yeah, politics intertwining with science in the Romulan Senate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to start to wrap things up, I've got one fun question for you um, as the producer and host of your own YouTube series. And as somebody who's super interested in film, if you were asked to to play a role in season two of Star Trek Picard, what would it be? Would you want to be a science advisor? Would you want to write a script? Would you want to play a character? And if if so, what, what kind of character would you want to play?
1: Oh, man, all of those things. But uh, <laughs> I, I, you know. I don't know. I would, I would, I'm closest to Vulcans, I would say, because, you know, Spock is really, boy, he's he's the the sort of thing that scientists like myself, at least like me, like really identify with as this logical guy around all of these people that are so emotional and everything like that. And he, he's one of the characters that really inspired me to, to want to be a, sci- a scientist. Yeah, Planet Vulcan would be amazing. But also in terms of like, you know, like science advising, that would be great to. I have done some science advising on, on movies and things like that, like uh, Rogue One, the Star Wars movie I did a little bit of uh, science advising on.
0: No way. That's awesome.
1: But it would be super fun to do – a science advising on star trek i do know they already have some science advisors so they're probably in good hands already but I, you know i do have also lots of creative ideas about man if i was making it a star trek episode i would make it like this i mean some of those about rogue one I, I wrote down to one of the writers like oh we've never seen this and this and this and this and this and uh, i think one of those made, made their way in uh, i suspect from from what i said but um my basic policy is this on on science and, and movies and advising is a lot of people, a lot of writers think, well, the scientists will just say, Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. In actuality, it's the opposite. The universe is far more crazy of a place. And it's more creative than the than the human mind is. And almost all people writing a show are basing their ideas about space on what they've seen in science. And so you're then limited by what we actually knew, say, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, something like that. And new discoveries are being made all the time. And so if you work with a scientist, they could tell you about all kinds of amazing stuff that you just have no idea about. And so, you know, I've always wanted to see a Star Trek episode where you've got this ship that can go across large parts of the galaxy. And there are amazing astrophysical phenomenon going on and you have an episode where you go and study that astrophysical phenomenon and that's more inspired by the wonder of science and finding out new things and of course you can tie it in with a subplot of characters and how they're going through similar you know things of self-discovery and, and whatever so that it's not just like a villain of the week or whatever but that that there is some that awe and wonder of discovery that is really at the core like right in that monologue that starts off star trek about strange new worlds like your podcast is named getting that feeling in through the science as well as the character development i would love to see an episode like that
0: me too uh that would be awesome so that's basically all the questions i have for you uh do you have any final thoughts on the first season of star trek picard scientific or otherwise
1: uh i thought that the the show was pretty good i love seeing Jean-Luc Picard back in action Uh, he is also one of the most inspiring characters to me I mean I think we all need a little bit more Picard in our lives Uh, you know somebody who's just competent and can get things done and he's empathetic and uh, just uh, I could watch Patrick Stewart do anything but what I liked the most about it was it was pretty provocative It's taking the show in in new areas uh, that we haven't seen in Star Trek before. We're getting to see some of the Earth side of things. I really like that. And I like thinking about consciousness and the androids. And it's always been this big question to me in Star Trek of why aren't there more androids? Why has nobody been able to duplicate data? And they're, they're starting to explore some of those things, which I think is quite fascinating, just as we now in our society are having more AI in our lives. You know, you can now talk on your phone and ask it, you know, some question and maybe it's not as smart as Commander Data, but it's approaching the level of smartness of the of the starships. So uh, I, I just love all of that. I'd like to see that explored a little bit more. And I, I do hope we could see a little bit more of, of Brent Spiner as well in some capacity or another, because he's also another great uh, piece of Star Trek. Uh, I love the data and I, I just wanna see more of Brent Spider in some way.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Data was actually the character that that drew me in. Um I guess I'm I'm not of the age that Spock would have done that for me, but it was watching Data on, on TNG. Um and yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they'll just invent another song for him to play. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well I think I think the the song that he's playing is still alive, right? That's true. So yeah, think, yeah. 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 Um, so Mm -hmm. the the newly invented one yes
0: (laughs) um so one last thing before we go how can people follow you and your show online
1: yeah uh i'm d underscore a underscore howell on twitter and uh just go to youtube and and look for science versus cinema and uh you should find uh, a bunch of episodes there
0: great well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Andy, um, and for teaching me about the science of supernovae. And good luck with the rest of your research and all of your science communication. And stay safe and live long and prosper.
1: All right. Thanks. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Dr. Andy Howell, a supernova scientist and the host of Science vs. Cinema. I feel so grateful to have had that conversation with Andy because, I mean, he's such a cool guy, right? Pushing the boundaries of what we know about outer space with his research efforts, but then also finding time to balance that with creative pursuits and his love for science fiction. I learned a lot from him today about how supernova science is done, and I hope you did too. Up next on Strange New Worlds, I finally found a scientist who actually studies the mycelial network! No, not the kind that bridges universes, but the kind that exists right here, beneath your feet. The fungal networks that tie entire forests together. And inspired the writers of Star Trek Discovery to imagine an even greater network spanning the multiverse. You won't want to miss this. Until then, see you out there.
1: back to Rogue One, I think that the only thing they used for my comments was the prison planet that Jen Erso is on. Uh, in the establishing shot, it is in this, like, cloud of gas all around it, the sort of nebula or whatever, and then on the planet itself it's really cloudy. And so I think that came from my comments, They're like, what if you were in a molecular cloud, and then, you know, things would be different. It didn't quite go to the level that I would have taken it, but it was, you know, interesting nonetheless to see that probably some some something we were talking about made it in there